You're listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C., featuring conference keynote speakers, panelists, and newsmakers. To join PRSA or register for the conference, visit prsa.org. My guest today is Charlene Lee. She is uh, keynoting the Public Relations International Conference in D.C. She will be speaking on the general session on Tuesday at 9.45 a.m. She is the co-author of Groundswell, uh, which she wrote with Josh Burnoff while she was at Forrester. And uh, uh, one of my favorites, Open Leadership, uh, which she wrote by herself uh, since she's been uh, at the Altimeter Group with uh, Jeremiah Oyang, who has been on this show before. Uh, Charlene, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Eric. So the title of your speech at the PRSA International Conference in D.C. is Open Leadership, How Social Technology Can Transform the Way You Lead. Um, when, I first, when I first read the book, um, and I was uh, happy to get an advanced reading copy of it at the, uh, um, at the Snicker Conference, which stands for the... What does it stand for, Charlene? Society for New Communications and Research. And and when I saw the book, I thought, wow, how smart to write a book uh, exclusively for leadership. Because it seems like often social initiatives at organizations are sort of tossed up from middle management or sometimes even lower down than that. And then you've got these people at the top who, well, as you showed us in uh, um, Groundswell, are largely disengaged. And, uh, and you've got to explain to them why this stuff matters. Uh, so, so tell us kind of what led to uh, the decision to write the book you know, geared for leadership. Well, I think you're, you're right. When I wrote the first book uh, that I published with Josh Burnoff um, in 2008 called Groundswell, I went on a speaker tour, started talking to companies about it, and all these leaders kept coming up to me and saying, I get it, I need to engage with my customers, get closer to my employees using these technologies, but I have one small problem. I don't like this whole idea of having to give up control, and I'm very uncomfortable with it, in fact. Um, How open do I need to be, frankly? Um, And so they were looking for that magic bullet of trying to figure out, how do I understand this new world? Because it's asking me to act and think uh, and work in a different way. So I kept seeing this question and hearing this question from very concerned people who felt sick to the stomach in some ways of having to actually engage. So I realized that this was a leadership issue. This was was not a technology issue. This is an issue about what is leadership in this new space where anybody can set up a Twitter account and get followers. And if you're a leader, by definition, because people can follow you, uh, this is actually creating a power shift, and therefore leadership needed to be redefined. And, and you talk about the sort of the ten elements of openness. Um, you could sort of walk us through those, if you would. Sure. I, again, being open uh, has a lot of different meanings for people. Some people think it's open platforms, like what iPhone or Facebook is. Other people think of it as open source. Other people think of it as you know, different ways to make decisions. I divide into two groups. One is around information sharing. Uh, and then the other one is around decision-making. And by defining how people are actually open, it actually allows people to have a rational discussion then 
around uh, how open are you going to be? How open are you really? So having two groups, again, of two types of ways to be open, one around information sharing and one around decision-making, is a good way to break out even just having a rational discussion. It gives you a platform and a dialogue, uh, a place to begin. And you say in the book, um, you know, you don't advocate everybody opening everything up, right? It's about figuring out what to share, when to share it, how to share it. Exactly. Uh, I do not advocate complete, open, um, throw-the-doors-open kind of approach to things. That doesn't make sense. And, in fact, business requires that you be circumspect in the way that you share information and who you uh, make decisions with, how you make decisions. So the way to figure out to answer that question, how open should you be, is really dependent on the goals you are trying to achieve. And in the past, it was pretty straightforward. Uh, it was based on the competition that you had, a little bit of employees, how much they needed to be brought into the process to get their buy-in. But now that you have all these customers, and especially in the public relations world, uh, where you don't necessarily can just put out a press release and expect things to happen, people are demanding information. It's much more of a dialogue that need to be open about what information you share uh, changes significantly. So the, I think it's, it really depends on not only the competition and internal, but also the overall relationship that you're having with the people you're trying to reach. Now, I actually got a, um, a question for you from Dan uh, uh, Manuzowski, and uh, he says he'd like to know the importance of maintaining a website and how to best use the new social network sites to drive people to it. Uh, is it necessary, um, or can you accomplish your goals uh, by eliminating your website and using social networking sites exclusively? That's, um, that's an interesting question, because I think it's somewhat dangerous to do that, because I still think you need some sort of anchor out there. It's almost like your storefront, your presence, to have a URL that you can direct people to. The reason being, if you use only social networks, and you can make Facebook your homepage, uh, but I think the, the limitations of what that page can do, what the information you can put on there, uh, if you have nothing else, it's a great place to start because it's public, it's easy to publish, you're out there in 10 minutes. Uh, but if you have the resources to be able to uh, have a website that you can put uh, information on, uh, have more flexibility, put a blog on it, for example, it, it reaches people in a different way. So in the same way that you have a media mix where you don't only rely on magazines or only do TV commercials, I do believe that you can have a richer experience and reach more people uh, in the medium that they choose to by having these multiple channels. But if you're only going to choose one, um, I think, again, if you only have to choose one and your whole goal is to reach as many people as possible in an outreach purpose, uh, having that Facebook page is a great place to start uh, if the only thing you can do is that. You know, um, when people first started talking about this concept of Facebook taking on Google as sort of the dominant place you go online for information, I thought, oh, my God, that'll never happen. No way. And now I wonder, I mean, Facebook has become so huge, and you see some startups now uh, that maybe don't have the money to build their own site, starting at least with a Facebook fan page. Any predictions on sort of where we're headed with respect to the development of Facebook and their battle against Google? Um, I mean, oh, yeah, I love, yeah, it's, it's, I'm sorry, 
the um, it, I think first of all the two are very different, and it's not so much a direct competition as it is that Facebook fills a different need than what Google does. If I'm looking up a fact, again Google is fantastic for that. I mean they just it have indexed everything. But if I'm trying to make a decision on things, uh, the more that I can tap into my social network and tap into what people who are like me are looking for, the better off I'm going to be. And Facebook has the beginnings of that. So if I'm planning something that has a really long, um, intricate decision-making process, like travel or buying a car, then I'm going to want to make sure that I'm going to a place where I can find people who are going to be like me and have the same circumstances. And that's not going to be Google. I mean, it, it's facts again. It's going to be much more likely that I can find that information on Facebook um, and with the people who are in my network or people like me. So then Google becomes higher up in the sales funnel, uh, awareness, and uh, the influence rests with Facebook and your social network. Yeah, and I think, again, nothing beats the Google search engine. Um, that It's just very effective. When somebody's looking at keywords, doing a search on that, the intent is very, very clear. But anything more involved with that, again, sort of earlier on in the process, when you're still trying to do discovery, when you're in that consideration and preference setting stages, or later on, um, if you're really trying to make that final decision, Google's not going to help you very much, uh, because it's not going to give you, it's not going to understand where you are in that process, how you relate to other people, they're not going to be able to tap into your network because your network isn't necessarily expressed inside of Google. Whereas if I'm making a professional decision that's related to work, deep you know, technology information or processes, I will go to LinkedIn and tap into my network there because I know the context of where people are. And Facebook, again, sometimes professionally, oftentimes for personal. Um, on Twitter, I'll just tweet out, does anybody have a recommendation? I, I did this last weekend. I needed to buy clothes for my middle school son, and I want to make sure he had, like, really cool brands of clothes. I don't know what cool brands are, so I tweeted out, what are good brands? And my friends will inform me on them. I remember seeing a, a cover story, uh, New York Times Magazine. I don't remember how many months ago it was, but I'll find a link, put it in the show notes. It was a, it was infrastructure was the headline of the story. And basically, it was a story about uh, what goes on behind the scenes when you query Google, the data centers, the pipes, all the infrastructure that powers the search. And I remember reading that Facebook had actually hired out all their infrastructure. And I wondered at the time, are they at a disadvantage because they don't own hardware and infrastructure, or does that actually put them at an advantage? What do you think? You know, they have a very different need. Um, again, Google has indexed the entire web, constantly crawling it. Facebook doesn't have that onus. It actually has a very different issue, which is it needs to keep track of all the information and who has permission to do what. That's software-driven. That's not necessarily hardware-driven. So rather than take their precious resources and manage software that's not going to give them much of an advantage, frankly, because not that much stuff happens in real time with Facebook. Um, there's information that goes back and forth, yes, in real time, but it's not nearly as real time as what Google needs to be, um, or frankly, what Twitter needs to be. So they have a bit of a luxury in that way. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, I don't know, I can't remember who they have outsourced, I believe it may be Amazon, but um, that's really good, solid infrastructure. And um, if you can uh, scale, have it scale at the way that you need to, it's, it's a much better way to do it than to tr try to run your own servers. 
if so it's not for your business. Thanks for uh, entertaining me on the detour questions, but I really wanted to ask you those. I, I do want to talk also about the book and uh, about your talk at um, at PRSA. Um, but let's start just from from the leadership standpoint, because I know you consult. You know, a lot of us who are listening to this show, we consult with a marketing person or a public affairs person or a corporate communications person. But you largely consult with uh, you know chief level officers, and one of the um, uh, real challenges. That, that I've always had when you get in front of an audience like that and you have to make a point is you have very little amount of time to do it and often you know they don't know the basics so you know when you when you're in that situation with someone who's largely inactive largely disengaged and you know you've got 15 20 minutes to make your point how do you how do you decide what point to make and, and how do you make your case about uh, the need for an organization to embrace open leadership well, first of all, I stay away from the technologies. The minute you start talking about Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, they get brain freeze. They, they can't even phantom what it's like to be on there. And they're, they're not going to get on there anytime soon. They're just not. What I instead do is talk about what's most important to them, which is the relationships that they need to facilitate to get work done, to achieve their most important strategic goals. And I ask, what is the health of those relationships? Because they can understand that. They can say they're healthy, they're not healthy, they're challenges. And we talk about how those challenges can be addressed uh, with better dialogue, better listening, um, better innovation with the use of these tools. How can relationships get better and stronger? How can you share more easily as a chief executive officer? So I've yet to meet an executive who didn't want to share more. Their need to share with clients their successes, have clients share with them their pains, hear from employees, have employees hear from them. This need for sharing is innate, um, and they all like to talk. And so what I usually do is I bring a flip camera with me, or I give them a flip camera, and I say, you know, just carry this around with you. And the next time you feel moved to want to share something with somebody, just record yourself. And then give it to somebody. Have them transcribe it. Maybe you put it onto your internal network. Or send it out just by an email. But just engage in this act of sharing because it's incredibly empowering. They feel empowered and they feel much more likely and able to achieve their goals that they're trying to achieve. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. You know, for those who are listening in PR, uh, we've all experienced um, uh, situations where the minute you take out the camera or the minute you start writing something down, people freeze. Um, you know, it's one thing for them to 
speak and 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 in a meeting and express their opinions but when you start to record it people get nervous i mean press releases when someone has to you know put something in writing and 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 put it on the public record uh you know they they freak out a little bit so so i guess you know when you give them that camera i mean you don't have that same reaction or or do they you know perhaps get choked up because the camera's rolling they do, which is why I just even say, just put it on the on the table there, and the next time you hear about a great client that you want to tell your team about, a great client experience, just share that, just internally with your executive team even. What would you tell the people closest to you if you could tell them? Um, what, would you more, what more would you tell people about the strategic um, initiative or change management initiative that you're trying to do? Um, Jeffrey Imelt, I, I was, um, I heard through his marketing team, was asked to give a commencement speech at Boston College. And so he reached out to all the Boston College grads at GE, so a couple hundred of them, and said, what was the most important thing that you learned from um, college that helped you in your career at GE? And all these people kept pouring back all these experiences, long, long essays. And he pulled for them and pulled them into his commencement speech. Now, he didn't use social technologies to do that, but he was initiating pretty much the same exact activities just through email, and people were responding. That call and response is what he was doing. So the next step would be to say, can you do this on a more regular basis? Could you do this on a client basis? Could you do this using these technologies that actually archive it? So in this case, he was just asking a question. Um, even just knowing that your executives are interested in your feedback could be an interesting step. So record 30 seconds to say, you know, we have this initiative. We'd love to hear from you, um, employees or clients, what you think about it. I think, one of, I think one of the reasons you know, sometimes people in PR are so sensitive to uh, this idea of, you know, opening up is, uh, you know, for the most part, they're trained in the business of public disclosure and uh, you know, some of them have been sandbagged in the past. They've had they they know how they can be made to look a way that they don't want to look. And in the past, you know, there's not been these ornate disclosure policies because companies would just hire PR professionals and let them deal with external communications. But obviously, you know, if you get social, everybody's going to communicate. And if everybody's going to communicate, yeah, you know, there's going to be some mistakes made. You know, there's going to be some some failure. So, I mean, how do you address that? Because I imagine the fear of loss from the CEO standpoint is huge. Yes, it is. And the thing I ask them is to say, think about the most important relationships in your life, in your business environment, and how often are they perfect? So, you know, you always make mistakes. The question becomes, how do you deal with them? How do you plan for those mistakes? How are you? Um, planning for recovery from them and how do you build resilience into your organization because you know those things are going to happen. Same thing here. Uh, if you look at all the circumstances when you extend yourself, reach out that hand to create that relationship, what are the things that could go wrong? And again, you take small steps. We're not asking somebody to jump full hog into um, having a Twitter and to maintain it and everything. We're talking about what's that first small step of sharing that you can take that you feel comfortable with, that you know that the benefits will come back to you. It's not going to happen overnight. And I think of it as putting enough training wheels on these executives so they start feeling comfortable with sharing. Um, and part of that is things will go wrong. People will misunderstand why you're asking that question. You have to refine it. 
um, you ask them where are you where do you have the confidence and the strength to be able to go and engage in those areas again what you're trying to do is create this culture of sharing um, and that doesn't come overnight it does not come easily and you have to again cultures require time and repeated 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 exposure and practice for that to happen and along the way, mistakes will happen. It, and I think it, it's really giving them examples of that and saying, is this really that bad? Is this, is this mistake really scary? And, the, and I think the worst case scenarios, you put them up on the wall and you put them on the board, on the whiteboard, and you say, these are the worst things that can happen. How do we prepare for that? Uh, because frankly, they're going to happen regardless of whether you engage or not. And so um, by engaging, you actually can help prepare yourself for those inevitable failures that happen. I look at attacks by Greenpeace on uh, Nestle, the, pro- the provocation that they had. They, they said, you know, Nestle needs to change some of the policies around this. And, you know, Nestle wasn't prepared. To Before you get into it, will you set it up for us? Tell us what happened. Yeah, so Nestle uh, had a Facebook page, has a Facebook page, and um, Greenpeace targeted Nestle because of their use of palm oils, which was, uh, cutting down trees that were being used, uh, that were uh, in habitats by, um, inhabited by orangutans. So they made a provocative video. They started uh, posting on the Nestle Facebook page. And the person who was managing it um, responded to people, I'm going to take them down because this is my page and I don't want these kind of negative comments on the page. And that got a bad reaction from people. It wasn't engaging people with the dialogue. Um, it just spun out of control, even though Nestle had already canceled many of those contracts, those palm oil contracts, and was doing the right thing, but they never got the message out because it was drowned out in this fight over what kind of dialogue could happen on the Nestle Facebook page. So the response was not good. The management of it was not good. The follow-up to it wasn't anywhere close to um, what it should have been and could have been. And Greenpeace was very organized in the way that they were asking Nestle to respond and to cancel those contracts. So Nestle wasn't prepared to have a dialogue. They were using Facebook as a promotional page, not as a dialogue page, and didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, didn't have the contingency plans in place. So there was nothing Nestle was going to be able to do to keep Greenpeace from and, and other advocates from being on their page. The only choice if they're going to have that page is to engage. Now, some organizations would say, I don't really want to be there to engage. Well, guess what? Greenpeace would have done that on somebody else's page, where Nestle would have had no chance to respond. So you're better off responding on a page where you can actually have some control rather than having it out in the wild, so to speak, where you have no voice at all. Now, you guys uh, recently released a report, uh, which was uh, the eight uh, success criteria for Facebook uh, page marketing. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Um, Terrific report on managing a Facebook page. And one of the recommendations in there is that on the information page, uh, you sort of say, or I should say the information tab of your Facebook page, you should say, hey, this is the objective of our page. Here's what we expect from people who are going to use this page. And I'm looking at the Facebook page. I, I don't see anything added there. Um, and in so many instances, it's those high-profile embarrassments like Jeff Jarvis at Dell, the exploding laptop batteries, uh, the Comcast uh, cares, the guy sleeping on the couch. I mean, that led to 
a huge resurgence and adoption of social media at these companies because they were embarrassed. Here's a case where Nestle was embarrassed, but doesn't seem like they've changed their ways. Well, first of all, when Dell um, happened with Jeff Jarvis, it took them about nine months to get their act together before they had a good program put in place. Uh, same thing with Comcast. It took about a year before Frank Elias set up Comcast Cares. So it takes a while for these organizations to figure out, recover, like, what happened to us? We just got blindsided. Now what do we do? So I think we need to give Desley some time. I know that they felt this uh, very deeply. And uh, they're trying to figure out what to do. Same thing with United Airlines. I talk about them in the book. Uh, when they had um, the United Breaks Guitars video, I interviewed United and their team there, and they were deeply affected by this. Uh, and so they doubled down uh, on their efforts. They already had efforts in place with social media, uh, but they really decided to really go after that aggressively to say, this is a place where we could actually have a relationship so that we could get the word out and explain what we were doing. Um, and, and how they were responding um, back to uh, the, the incident. So I think it takes some time. Um, and the most important thing is that there is movement forward from that mistake rather than movement backwards. And in most circumstances, I can see people saying, okay, I, I, we know something bad happened here. We're going to move forward and try to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So the question becomes, do most organizations have to go through that cathartic um, experience where it's extremely painful for everybody? Or can you be ahead of that curve? Um, and I see a lot of businesses today trying to be ahead of that, trying to take ownership, actually take control of being more open. And I do believe this, that in order to be open, you have to actually have to exert more control, more processes, have greater discipline, have a clear strategy than being closed. Because being close is, I'm just not going to do it. It's really easy to do that. But being open, being engaging, setting a, a very clear guidelines and processes requires a huge amount of work and a huge amount of change. To what extent do you think the level of competitiveness in a marketplace impacts a company's willingness to embrace social media? If a market is controlled you know, by large carriers think of the airline business you know you've got you've got a lot of carriers but you know in the u.s you've got three major carriers um do you think that those carriers are going to be less likely to embrace social or in the case of nestle i mean sure they may have you know messed up here with their facebook page but it's not so easy to you know make candy bars and get them in the store i mean they've got the distribution they've got the infrastructure do you think that that affects their willingness to change I think competition is always in the back of their minds that, oh, my competition has a Twitter page now that's putting out uh, last-minute travel promotions. I need one of those, too. The harder thing to respond to is my competition is having a really deep dialogue around innovation in the business. I'm not sure if my organization is comfortable doing that yet. And yet, think about what a great competitive advantage that is if you're able to do that. And so it's one thing to set up a promotional um, page or set up a Twitter feed that's you know, fairly marketing-oriented. It's another thing to invest in a relationship that has depth, has meaning, um, and also requires that you take a little bit of risk and that you don't know where that relationship is going. I mean, relationships are open-ended, 
and they can go bad, they can go wrong, they can stagnate. They're living, breathing entities that uh, need nurturing. So, and yet most uh, of the social media to date, um, as we saw with the Facebook marketing report, it has been very static. It's not been focused on building relationship. It's been, if anything, continuation of the old marketing and um, PR techniques. So it's it's about the relationship again that I think is the most important thing that that um, uh, people need to be focused on. When you look at the world of uh, business and um, how organizations are adapting, or I should say adopting social media into, into how they communicate, assimilating it into their business processes. Do you see any big differences between how business-to-consumer organizations are doing it versus how business-to-business organizations are doing it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think the key difference is scale. Um, clearly, if you are trying to reach B2C people, you are going after a large audience or talking about reaching people um, with, in some cases, a more simple message, but in many ways, it's also a, a, the first time an opportunity that you actually get to talk to your customers. You've never had that chance before. The opposite is true of B2B, uh, whereas the conversations usually tend to be one-on-one. Um, it tended to be usually one person at the company, one person at the buying company you're trying to sell to. With B2B social media, you can actually expand that universe, that ecosystem of who actually talks, who's involved in that conversation. So in many B2B conversations um, in that buying process, what you have are not just that one decision maker, but 10, 20, 50 people inside the organization who are part of that process. And same thing with your company. You have a whole team of people behind you, too, as well. Now you can make visible all those conversations inside a private community, inside a discussion area, uh, inside a forum involving other buyers who can share and and help each other with this fairly complex decision-making process. So it's about actually expanding the universe of that conversation in B2B. And it doesn't necessarily have to happen in private communities. It happens a lot on places like LinkedIn that are professional, but increasingly they're also happening on Facebook. Uh, I, I sit down with B2B companies all the time and I say, let's do a search on Facebook for your company name. Let's just see where the conversations are happening. Inevitably, they're happening. Sometimes they're only from the recruitment purposes. Sometimes it's your customers talking about how they're working on a particular project or plan. But just knowing that they're there, you may not conduct business there, but it's a starting point for a conversation that can take place in these other channels and venues. Uh, Final question, Charlene. Uh, So much discussion about listening, listening to the conversation. Um, You know, the the promise of how the computer in 2001 who could listen to us and respond to us, you know, the promise of artificial intelligence never really materialized. Uh, You know, we've got all these measurement tools which are, you know, kind of dumb counters. Uh, you know, some are attempting to do sentiment analysis, but certainly no machine-based solutions that are entirely accurate. So um, if you're absolutely overwhelmed with comments or overwhelmed with discussion and you find, you know, 50% or more of that is, you know, sploggers or aggregators or other black hat SEO sites, um, you know, how do you get your arm around, arms around that? What sort of staffing is required how does the organization address listening? Does it 
Does it assimilate listening into the business function of existing staff? Does it add new staff? How do you handle that? Yeah, I think a couple of layers, first of all. I think listening has traditionally been in the hands of a small number of people in market research. And they have tremendous skills uh, of, of deciphering insight and pulling it out of the data. That is still very valuable. But I think if you could spread out the listening to everybody in the organization, they may not use these tools, but if they can listen to the right conversations that can help them do their job, let's say just 2% better, just 2% better, just an incremental little bit, what could happen to your organization in terms of productivity if everybody could do that? I mean, the, the gains are tremendous. If they could just be that much more focused because they understand what the customer is looking for. Uh, they can do their job better at that particular moment because they have access to those conversations, to all the information that's happening out there. This isn't about sentiment or high-level measurements. I mean, those things are very important still. Uh, but just imagine if you could make your entire organization a very effective listening and learning organization, how powerful that would be. And I think that's the real promise of this in that you can scale listening, you can scale learning at levels that you could never have done it before. And all it takes is a browser, type in a search on Twitter, type in a search into Google blog search, into any of the real-time searches, and just see what people are saying about your company. Makes you that much more attuned to being focused on that customer is an incredible gift that most organizations can't exploit today. I, I know I said that was the last question, but I have just one more. So I um, I really consider you to be an influencer. I've followed your career. I, I you know I've, I've read your work. I think you're really a smart person, and I have a lot of respect for you. What I'm curious to know is who are your influencers? Oh, that's a great question. I um, I'm pretty old school. I read a lot of traditional media. Um, partly because that's the audience that my audience, executive, um, VP-level type people, are listening. So I get an idea of what people are saying there. And then I have a couple people, a couple hundred people I follow on Twitter. That's public. You can see that. And then I also read um, my, my one source of staying on top of everything is tech memes. And that's about it. Everything else is pretty filtered. I read very few blogs on a regular basis. I read um, very few um, publications and sites on a regular basis. I read a lot, uh, but it's very much on a topic basis. So I am on a pretty strict, what I call, social media diet. I, I spend very little time on it on a daily basis. Um, and it's very, very focused on, on very specific topics that I'm looking for. Uh, so the best way to influence me is to be influencing um, traditional media to some extent, uh, having uh, tapping into the bloggers who are scanned on TechMeme and then talking to the people who are on my Twitter list. And again, I do follow and, and, and read those people quite regularly. But again, Twitter is sort of hit and miss. Um, it's more of a running pulse of what's going on and what people are thinking about and doing at that particular point. Uh, but in the end, the, the, my guiding light are my clients. What are their issues, burning issues, the things that they're thinking about? Uh, those are the things I go deep and, and really try to understand how they can solve those problems. Charlene Lee, partner at Altimeter Group, is the author of Open Leadership, 
How Social Technology Can Transform the Way You Lead, and co-author of Groundswell, Winning in a World Transformed by Social Technologies, she will be a keynote speaker at the Public Relations Society of America's International Conference in D.C. Uh, she will be speaking Tuesday morning at 9.45 a.m. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Eric. You've been listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, post a comment to the show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at On the Record, or send an email to eric at ericschwartzman.com. This podcast has been a special production of On the Record Online and the Public Relations Society of America. Unlike normal productions of On the Record Online, this episode recording cannot be duplicated without explicit permission from PRSA.